Uh, we're a little thin this morning, but we're going to go ahead and get started and trust that uh, the wet roads and the weather and other things are keeping people a little bit delayed this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, not only setting aside our own distractions and preparing ourselves for study, but let's pray these guys in here safely, shall we? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word and the privilege it is that we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, any others of our brothers and sisters that are on their way in this morning, we pray for their safety and the wet roads and the, the craziness that's out there. Father, uh, for those who are not on their way here because uh, other circumstances and details of life are preventing them, Father, you know their desire, you know that they want to be here. We pray that you would organize the uh, circumstances and details accordingly. Reward the uh, desire, and Father, we thank you that all the reward for all that we do is according to what we have, in other words, what you provided, not what you withheld. We thank you this morning now for the truth of your word, we ask for concentration. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we're kind of in the middle. Uh, we got a couple of details to wrap up with this moot demoniac, and, uh, and then we can move on to the rejection of Christ at Nazareth. Uh, we're also a little bit out of sorts because of last week and not having a class with the uh, with the blizzard, the Austin blizzard of of 07, something that we'll tell our grandchildren about, the horrible, horrible blizzard of Austin. That's right, the ice storm. Well, we're talking two events here very quickly, and I think a lot of these are going to be very rapid leading up to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but we talked about the restoration of these two blind men, their sight, and then on the heels of that, the healing of this moot demoniac. And so we're in Matthew chapter 9 for the moment. Neither of these events is, is recorded in Mark, Luke, or John. So we are limited to Matthew's account for, uh, for both of these episodes, episode 31 and 32 in the Galilean ministry. As we read it, starting in Matthew 9:27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And we spent a lot of time on the significance of that title, Son of David, with their faith and their understanding and recognition of what the Davidic covenant entailed, who the Son of David was going to be in terms of not only the king, but also the Christ. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. In other words, they had an understanding of not only the political significance of the Son of David, not only the earthly sphere in which the Davidic throne was to have uh, uh, blessings for the Jewish people, but then in the spiritual realm, the realm of divine power, in which the, the Messiah, uh, the Christ, was to uh, be a healer. And so they said to him, Yes, Lord. And uh, he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And we made comment upon that, that this is the only time, or one of the few times, I haven't found another one, to where the Lord verbally tied the accomplishment of a work of power to, that is in accordance with, or uh, on, uh, on a level with, the faith of those that were asking for the request. And, and so it's interesting, because this is unique. It's not the rule, certainly. Charismatics today, the faith healers today, want to make this the rule rather than the exception, and uh, it becomes their uh, it becomes their cop out when the healing doesn't take, or when it doesn't work, or when uh, the healing is only temporary and the symptoms come back. Uh, they say, well, it's because of your faith. You know, the healing is according to your faith, and so then they blame the the victim rather than their own fraudulent activity. Well, no, we uh, hopefully we understand the issue on that. 
And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. That's a pattern we're going to see more and more throughout these episodes. So to just very quickly run through the notes, um, the context for this does follow the raising of Jairus' daughter. Two blind men seek them out. We talked about the context of this, both in Matthew's written record and in the chronological record. This is the first written record in Matthew for the healing of the blind. But because we're doing this study on a chronological basis, we have seen previous healings of the blind, including uh, the scriptures on the screen. We went through those a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 11:5, Luke 7. Uh, Matthew 12, all of those passages that reference healing of the blind prior to this event chronologically, although here in Matthew 9, this is the first instance in uh, the written text of Matthew. They're addressed to him as the son of David, entails an understanding of the promised Messiah, the Mashiach, or the Christ, the Christos in the Greek. Uh, I did this exercise with my teenagers Sunday night, and it worked out well. I thought I'd do it again this morning, and I think probably we need to do this uh, repeatedly uh, just to remind ourselves of what we're doing when we say the Messiah. There's a lot of misconceptions about the Messiah, including believers' misconceptions about the Messiah. And we got this idea, we use the term Messiah even in earthly terms. Unbelievers use the term Messiah. They're looking for, you know, they thought when Bill Parcells came to uh, the Dallas Cowboys, that he was their Messiah. You know, well, what do they mean by that? And now they're looking for a new one because Bill quit. So what's going to happen now? Well, the Messiah. You'll see uh, in the, uh, like so, there's a couple different ways to spell it, but like so, Mashiach. What is that? What is a Messiah? Somebody tell me. Savior. What else? There you go. Okay. Anything else? What 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 do you associate Messiah with? Jesus, okay. I'm trying to come up with some more misconceptions. You're all being too quiet. What else? Give me another idea. The idea of a uh, savior, the idea of a hero, the idea of a deliverer, the idea, what'd you say? Okay, actually, Savior is wrong, and uh, Jesus is wrong. Uh, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Messiah, but Messiah is the Anointed One. And specifically, it refers to the verb, mashach, uh, which is to anoint, to smear. And that is to anoint in the uh, realm of holiness, to set apart, to consecrate, to dedicate uh, for a holy purpose. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. Uh, additionally, there were furnishings that were anointed. The temple was anointed. The high priest was anointed. His clothes were anointed. The altar was anointed. The candlesticks were anointed, and so forth. The equivalent in the Greek is Christ, which again does not mean king. It does not mean coming one. It does not mean savior. It does not mean a hero. It does not mean deliverer. It doesn't mean hope for one. These are kind of the things that Messiah kind of has. It means anointed one. And in the Greek, Christos is anointed one. The verb krio is the verb to anoint. 
And so a Christos is a person or a thing that has been anointed. You are anointed ones. We are all Christ in the sense that we have the anointing, that from the moment of our salvation we receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We are anointed priests in the dispensation of the church, the great high priest, Lord Jesus Christ. So we are all Christs. We don't tend to use that vocabulary, but there's nothing inappropriate about using that vocabulary. We are all Christs because we are all anointed ones. We are all messiahs. Uh, some people associate Messiah with chosen one. There's another misconception. All of these are terms like Savior, chosen one, coming one, King, God, Lord. Um, there are so many titles associated with Jesus, uh, but specifically when we reference Messiah, we're talking about the anointed one. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what was the anointed one expected to do? He was expected to be the king. He was expected to be the coming one. He was expected to be the savior. He was expected to be the lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. He had, there were a lot of expectations associated with Messiah, and, but the study itself is the study of, of messiology, the study of, of the messiahship, the coming Messiah. And that's how people were saved before Christ. That's how they were saved looking forward. We were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So were they. They just didn't know the proper name. They didn't know who it was going to be or when they were going to come. But they knew that the seed of the woman was going to come to redeem mankind and to crush the serpent's head. That was the gospel message from Genesis 3 onward. So we're all saved looking to the Christ. Those of us in the, in the church are looking back at the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But those ahead of time were looking to the Messiah. Saved by grace through faith, same as we are today. So there's no, there's not, sometimes dispensationalists are accused of teaching two forms of salvation or two modes of salvation. There's no such thing. We're all saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's just that we have the advantage of hindsight to look back to the past completed work. They, with foresight, were looking forward to the future promised work. And that's the difference. That's the only difference, one of perspective. So in terms of calling him the son of David... And in terms of, uh, uh, by faith, believing that he was able to heal them, gives us this understanding that they knew about Messiah, they knew about the coming king, they knew about his work as a healer, and all the promises that were made associated with him. Now, thirdly, he does delay speaking with them until he reaches the privacy of the house. This is, we're starting to see more and more as well, that he's being... Um, discerning in terms of his audience he's he's withholding certain things until he is in private he will still have a large public ministry we've got the feeding of the 5,000 coming up he has some tremendous outdoor messages coming up but more and more that's the that's going to become less and less common while the private teaching is is going to become more and more prevalent in the uh in the increased afflictions and the increased conflict nations of the world today where there's more and more of uh, conflict and persecution and and uh, struggles in the church those groups get more and more circumspect about where they meet and when they meet and who they allow in their meetings and and to the point where they get all the way underground under maximum persecution where they are uh, underground churches and uh, that's something that perhaps we'll have in our in our uh, generation in our country in the days to come all right, then uh, two subpoints under this, and I think that's where we left off. Jesus asked them to profess their faith and heals their blindness according to their faith. 
and how he once again gives instructions for his miracle not to be proclaimed that uh, went in one ear and out the other as we see uh, he tells he sternly warns them and they and then we have the but in verse 31 they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land now the last thing we get here is with the demoniac as the formerly blind men depart a mute demoniac is brought in and this is verses 32 through 34 as they were going out a mute demon possessed man was brought to him after the demon was cast out the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and were saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel now that's factually false but it's typical with respect to uh the subjectivity of a lot of believers a lot of people that think that the day and age in which we live in is unique and that uh, nothing like this has ever happened before and uh, we're just living in the greatest age imaginable but the pharisees were saying verse 34 he casts out demons by the ruler of demons we've seen that before we've seen that in uh, matthew 12 matthew 12 the events of matthew 12 precede this but in the written record this event comes first and so we realize that this is a growing pattern there were probably many times in which those grumbling rumors uh were being spread by the pharisees that well he's he's a servant of beelzebub he's a servant of the ruler of demons he's he's uh, he himself is a sorcerer and uh, which is part of the evidence against him why they wanted to to uh to put him to death now, four subpoints under this, and I know we haven't gotten this far, have we? And I need to switch that back. Thank you. Well, do you want to see what those other points look like? Uh, let's go back to here. Point three was the point there where Jesus delays speaking until he reaches the privacy of the house with subpoints A or B. He asks them to profess their faith. And uh, he once again gives instructions for the miracle to not be proclaimed. Now, I will say, I, I think it is open to question here. If you read the wording of verse 30, it says, see that no one knows. And then the term about this is kind of supplied. It's in italics because the, uh, the Greek doesn't exactly finish the, the object of the verb. See that no one knows. So their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows. And I think, I think about this is, is fitting. I think it's appropriate. See that no one knows uh, concerning the performance of this miracle or concerning who did this miracle and so forth. He had taken them indoors. Uh, it's now behind closed doors. There's no need to have a public testimony that Jesus did it. Uh, you know, the, if anyone wants to know, they can just say the Lord did it and not give a human instrument, not give any kind of thing. Uh, and then it says they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. And so it may not necessarily be disobedience on their part uh, or like with the, the demonic Gadara, you know, the formerly known as uh, uh, Legion uh, and, and all these other folks. When he warns them not to spread the news about their healings, are they wrong then to go out and, and testify concerning him? So far as they don't mention the healing, so far as they don't talk about the miracles. But if they, as a response, as a outworking of their faith, if they want to go out and testify to the Messiah's presence in their nation, if they want to go out and talk about the need for uh, the Jews to humble themselves and repent and and accept their king and all of the things that are uh, associated with the arrival of the Christ, 
then perhaps we uh, might give these guys a little more um, slack and not not condemn them for being so disobedient uh, when he urges them to not spread the news about the miracle. And uh, maybe we're reading too much into it when we say that they're disobedient, because as we read this, they were they went out and spread the news about him. So, you know, it's it's possible that they they kept the miracle quiet. They didn't talk about their healing and they just went out as proclaimers of the present Messiah. Uh, We don't exactly know. And I think we don't want to build a case probably and go too far with it in either direction, but at least we should acknowledge that it's, we don't have all the information as to uh, what it was that we're speaking. The, the, the demon, uh, the, the former legion uh, demoniac, we don't know what the content of his message was. We just know that he was all excited about it, and he traveled throughout all the, the cities of the Decapolis over there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. All right, now under point four, as the formerly blind men depart, a mute demoniac is brought in. And uh, we went through the text already in verses 32 through 34. I think it's interesting, though, that his need was spiritual rather than physiological. His need was spiritual rather than physiological. He didn't have a physical problem. It was a spiritual affliction. And this is something that, of course, medical doctors will never understand unless they're believers with doctrine. And, uh, and they're treating a patient with a speech impediment or they're, they're treating a patient with blindness or deafness or some other affliction and they're trying to find a reason why. And they send you to the neurologist and they do brain scans trying to find a reason why. What is it that can affect the chemical physiology of the brain? Well, in this text and others, we observe that the removal of the demon uh, altered or restored the human being to normal physical function. That's the case here. It wasn't uh, anything wrong with his voice. There was no damage to his vocal cords. There was nothing physical or medical, shall we say, uh, that once the demon was gone, the man spoke. And so clearly he had a mind. He had the ability to speak. He had the knowledge of the vocabulary in order to use the words, but the nature of the demon was such that it was holding his tongue. It was preventing him from doing so. And uh, anyway, there's more to say on that. Some of the demons would cause blindness and some of the demons would cause deafness. Some of the demons would cause uh, the, the silence being mute and so forth. There were other afflictions with demonism that were associated with uh, what doctors would probably call epilepsy or, or uh, seizures where they would uh, you know, fall to the ground and flop around or even throw themselves into the fire and do themselves great harm. There's, uh, well, I don't want to expand on this a whole lot, but let's just keep in mind that the spiritual realm is different than the medical realm. The medical realm being physiological, looking at the physical issues involved, um, if they're not going to acknowledge the existence of the spiritual realm, then how far are they going to go in their treatment? All right. Now, having said that, not every sickness is demonic. <laughs> okay. We don't want to go to the other extreme and say, oh, you don't need a doctor. You need, a, you need to have a demon cast out. All right. There is non-demonic sickness. 
And that's just simply by the fact that we have fallen bodies in a fallen world. We are subject to allergies. We are subject to disease. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And just because you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ does not mean that, uh, that you, you, you could expect to never be sick. I've had Pentecostal friends that tell me that they've that uh, that once you know if you learn the secret of casting out the demons and shielding yourself from the demons and so forth, you'll never be sick ever again. And they've got this mentality and this mindset that they, that they're never sick. See, there is non-demonic sickness, and that's just simply the issues. and And why are we entitled to perfect health? Jesus wasn't entitled to perfect health. None of us are entitled to perfect health. That's why we have this treasure in earthen vessels. They want to deny the issue of earthen vessels and turn it into something else. They want a a pre-resurrection, resurrected body of some sort with some kind of... I don't know what they want. In any event, the need here was spiritual. And this is a pattern we see again and again and again and again. And so... Uh, we're left with these issues and, and people ask me, you know, well, what do you think about psychiatry? What do you think about, uh, these, these mind altering drugs and the things that the doctors prescribe? And they say, well, you know, those are, those are medical doctors that are prescribing these, these drugs for, you know, for mood swings and all these other things. I think we need to be careful. We want to examine what is the, what is the true realm of medicine? What is the realm of doctors and what is a spiritual realm? See, when you're treating the suke, the suke is the soul. And that's a spiritual dimension to be handled by the word of God and shepherded by a pastor. Let's be careful with what we're doing. All right. So his need was spiritual rather than physiological. And time and time and time again, yeah, yeah, we'll bring Quentin Swafford in or somebody from the youth ranch and those boys that they get that are so drugged. And the first thing they do is get them off the drugs. They get them off of the, the Ritalin and everything else that they've been pumped for years. Start to deal with spiritual issues. And it works. It's an amazing. It takes patience. <laughs> it takes, uh, you know, a youth ranch in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so that when they uh, run off, there's nowhere to go except the woods. Oh, Absolutely. Have no question about that. Well, now let's be careful now. The physical conditions of, of seizures and epilepsy and diseases and so forth have physical things to, to answer them. But spiritually caused phenomena must be spiritually answered. And that's what we're saying here under this point. Freed from the demon, the man was able to speak. Freed from the demon, the man was able to speak. Again, there are there are physiological reasons for for seizures and epilepsy and and so forth beyond the spiritual realm that obviously need to be treated medically all right freed from the demon the man was able to speak and we find this in other cases we find this with blindness where the casting out of a demon restored physical sight to the uh, to the human being involved uh deafness we have examples of that in the Gospels, where the casting out of a demon restored the ability to hear. Um, and so we have the examples there. Thirdly, the crowds were amazed, and they recognized the significance of the Lord's activities. The crowds were amazed, and they recognized the significance of the Lord's activities. In verse 33 
the, the crowds were amazed. It says nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And as I said, that's factually inaccurate, and yet it does testify to the unique nature of the Lord's ministry and how certainly nothing like this has ever been seen by their generation. If you think about it, they haven't had a writing prophet in 400 years. They haven't had a miracle-producing prophet in 400 years. And now all of a sudden, they have a, a uh, an influx of this with uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple, with, with uh, John the Baptist, but he did no miracles. Now here comes the Lord, and he's doing miracles. And so... It's it's a bit of an exaggeration on their part to say it's never happened in the history of our nation, but it is true to say that it has not happened in their lifetime apart from this present ministry of Jesus Christ. And that uh, that then becomes noteworthy. The, the distinction between the, the people and the leaders is part of what we're going to see. That gap is going to be growing. I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, these two blind men actually saw more than the Pharisees saw. Because they saw the son of David, and they received healing, and they re- their physical sight was restored uh, as a consequence of their spiritual sight being so vivid, and their opportunity to approach the uh, the Messiah and to receive their healing. So the the blind men saw more than the uh, than the Pharisees. I think these crowds were in between a little bit. They were they didn't see as much as the blind men saw. Uh, they didn't see as much as this demoniac saw. And uh, interestingly enough, this demoniac doesn't ask to be healed. This demoniac doesn't have the faith to be healed. The, the Lord didn't ask the demoniac, do you believe I can do this? <laughs> he just cast out the demon. And the uh, demoniac was able to speak. So he saw less than the blind man saw. The crowd saw less than he saw. But still, it was more than what the Pharisees were willing to see. Because they were in such opposition in their hatred Remember, it's the nature of fallen humanity to see what you want to see, to believe what you want to believe, to hold your views as strongly as you can hold them because uh, you hate the idea that your views are, are wrong. And in uh, the nature of it here, and that, that gap is going to be widening. By the time of the triumphal entry, the, the children and the crowds and the, the, the popularity is going to be such that they're proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king. And the religious leaders are ready to execute him. So that gap will be growing as well. And I think that's part of, throughout church history, what has been the division between clergy and laity, between the common people. I think one of the reasons they hated Wycliffe so much, they hated Luther so much, they translated the Bible into the vernacular. They let the common believer read it for themselves. And Rome absolutely hated that. They wanted to keep scriptures in Latin. So that their priesthood would be the source of information. You've got to trust us. Our services are in Latin. Our scriptures are in Latin. Everything's in Latin. Why? Uh, and, and the common people, they can't understand it. They're not priests. They don't have, you know, it would be dangerous for the common worker to read the Bible for themselves. So uh, the issue of it here, I think the idea in our day and age too, even among Protestant circles, has fallen into that realm that oh you know you've got to you've got to send these men to a formal seminary and all the other stuff the idea of having a local church training ministry we're not entitled to that information we're not worthy we're not able to handle the depths of what you know as the seminaries are going to be able to teach 
the depths of uh, of these theologies and so forth. Now I'm I'm more like the Lord. Let's uh, let's teach the word and let every believer, all Scripture is God breathed and profitable, and uh, every believer has the anointing to learn this truth. Finally, the Pharisees published disinformation. The Pharisees published disinformation to discredit and diminish the perceived significance of the Lord's activities. Starting to spread the stories about him serving Beelzebub, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, the ruler of the demons. This episode comes first in Matthew's written record, but chronologically after Matthew 12. Nevertheless, we see that it's the pattern that is in all likelihood repeated over and over and over again as the Pharisees would spread to synagogues throughout all Judea and uh, Galilee. Matthew 12, 22 through 24, we've already covered it. The Pharisees said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. When you realize the slander gets thrown out there, who is the slanderer? Who is the slanderer? The accuser. Very good. And uh, just like you want to learn different titles for Mashiach and Christos are the terms for anointed one. He himself was previously an anointed one. He's called the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28. But his present term is called the slanderer. Ha diabolos. It means devil. So when you have devil, all the devil means, diabolo, diabolos means slanderer, the one who slanders. That's the devil. And so we see it here. You know, and you get different things. There's postings on the Internet about how we're a cult and different things like that. And postings on the Internet about how, you know, we're just minions of, uh, we're, a, we're a theme cult or a doctrinal cult and whatever and all this other stuff. Uh, just don't worry about it. If you read something like that, just relax. You know what we are. You know that the Word of God is being taught. You know that the edification of God's Word is, is blessing you. So don't worry about the slander or the rumors as they start getting spread. All right. Any questions on this episode before we move on to Matthew chapter 13? Or actually, let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Any questions on this, uh, these episodes? Should be pretty straightforward. Mark chapter 6 then. And we'll look at the second rejection of Christ in Nazareth. Episode 33 in the Galilean ministry. Nazareth's second rejection of Christ. The passages for this will include Matthew 13, 53 through 58, following the uh, parables of the, uh, the kingdom of heaven parables, and then Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Remember I mentioned uh, in our previous couple of sessions, the chronology, Matthew is not chronological, and we've done a lot of bouncing already between uh, up to chapter 13 even in uh the Gospel of Matthew. We've got some things going back to chapter 10, though, that we haven't covered yet, and uh, chapter 11 that we haven't covered yet. But we've been back and forth from 8 to 13 to 8 to 12 and so forth. There's a lot of that in Matthew. Matthew was not written to be chronological. Uh, Luke was written to be chronological, as was, to a large degree, Mark. And in our harmony, uh, we find that we're primarily in a Mark sequence uh, with, with Luke agreement on the uh, the harmony of the Gospels that we're making use of. All right, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, a lot of folks will equate this with Luke chapter 4 and only see one 
uh, trip to uh, Nazareth. Uh, there are so many differences, though, between Luke 4 and these two chapters that it really is best, uh, in my mind, in a lot of people's mind, to have two trips to Nazareth. In uh, the first, he was alone. He did not have disciples at that time. Uh, and here, though, he has the 12 disciples, and his disciples are with him. We're told in Mark 6, 1, Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around in the villages teaching. All right, so we'll uh, drop that there. The Matthew account is very similar. Matthew chapter uh, 13. In Matthew's record, it follows the account of the parables of the kingdom. Verse 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Uh, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and, jo and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not go, uh, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All right. I'm going to pull up the text in parallel here for the moment. There's the uh, Matthew record. And at the same time, I'm going to get Mark up here. Because I already spotted a difference in your outline coming up of something that I may want to reword from verse 5. Uh, these two accounts are largely parallel and, and not, uh, not that different from each other. One uh, place where perhaps that we can view a difference. Uh, well, there's a couple. The spelling of Joseph versus Joseph. I don't know if that bothers some folks. Um, the uh, get this one here to Mark six. All right. Did you notice uh, he was called the carpenter's son in one version, and he was called the carpenter in another version? So that's a difference. All right, I think if I leave them like that. There. Okay. And yes, I'm going to reword one of my points coming up because of the text of Mark 6, 5. All right, let's look at our outline then. Jesus came to his hometown for the second recorded time since his ministry began. 
The first time was Galilean ministry, episode number two, rejected at Nazareth. And uh, in that episode, the last time he made them so mad that, uh, that they tried to kill him. The episode in Luke chapter 4. It's worth looking at. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. This is now his second time to return there. Unless, of course, you think that these events are one and the same. Some people still try to do that. I think it's worthwhile to separate them. Um, simply because uh, the, the context for this is so different. Uh, episode 2, GM number 2, Galilean ministry number 2, is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. It's not covered in Matthew, not covered in Mark or John. Uh, this episode, GM 33, Galilean ministry number 33, is recorded in Matthew and Mark, but not recorded in Luke. And uh, in any event, some people take that as reason to try to combine them. Uh, it'd be... You know, if, if this event was also recorded in Luke, if Luke recorded both of them, then the question would be resolved. But uh, we don't have that, so I guess it's still a, a debate. I think uh, the significance of, of no disciples in Luke 4 is, uh, is noteworthy. Uh, he, he grabs the fishers of men in chapter 5 of Luke and, and, uh, and so forth. He gets Matthew in chapter 5, and he's... Uh, there's no question that he's here without disciples on this uh, particular occasion. He came to uh, Nazareth where he'd been brought up, as was his custom, reading from Luke 4.16. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And uh, this is where he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read. Uh, particularly, take note, this is from Isaiah 61. In verse 18 it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me claiming himself as the anointed one uh, with uh, the Holy Spirit of, of Yahweh, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. So when he asked those two sons of David, uh, two blind men that were calling him son of David, he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. They understood his anointing. They understood his messiahship. They understood the uh, promise coming through Isaiah. To set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stops in the middle of a verse in the reading of Isaiah 61. He stops in the middle of the verse and he rolls up the scroll. He can't read the rest of the verse. Because the rest of the verse goes on to talk about second advent uh, activities. The second uh, part of that verse goes on to talk about conquering and reigning and ruling. And things that uh, are not first advent in their application. So he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. All right? So we have the episode there. If you want, I won't take the time this morning, but go read Isaiah 61. Read through uh, those verses there, and you'll see that he stops his reading in the middle of a verse. He reads a verse and a third. And he does not read the, the second, third, and, the, and the, the, uh, when you look at that verse, you can break it down into thirds. He reads one-third of, of that verse, I think it's verse 2. And then he doesn't read the second and third parts of that verse or the verse that follows because those are second advent. And he wanted to be able to close the book and say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In any event, uh, it goes on and he makes them even more mad. Um, he talks about how Elijah didn't uh, take care of every widow in the country, just the one. And uh, all the lepers that Elisha could have healed, but he only healed one, and that one was a Syrian. He was a Gentile. 
and uh, he's trying to teach some important principles of uh, of uh, doctrine, and they didn't want to have any part of it. They were just filled with rage. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. That was their answer to solving problems. <laughs> when when uh, a troublemaker comes to town, just run him off the cliff. Takes care of it. <laughs> oh, things were simpler back then. Do you ever miss those days? Been watching some old westerns lately and... You know, that was the thing. The town just took care of it. You got your sheriff, or maybe you didn't have a sheriff, or you got a posse together, and you just formed a group and took care of it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that was the previous time. There's no uh, record this time of uh, him making them mad or them trying to kill him. Uh, also, uh, there's no record... Uh, of the disciples being present that time. You know, did they try to drive them off a cliff as well? No, there weren't disciples at that point. They were still in their fishing business. They hadn't been called to be fishers of men. Matthew was still collecting taxes, and and uh, the others were <clears throat> were still doing what they were doing. But here in this chapter, the disciples are with them, and, uh, and he's giving them teaching that's amazing them. He's doing a few miracles, not many, and remarkable, the uh, the one, the few that he's doing, and the few that he's able to do, uh, and that he's willing to do, are uh, are not that extraordinary. And yet, it leaves them amazed because they want to know about the miracles that he is doing. Secondly, we observe that his teaching ministry caused astonishment. His teaching ministry caused astonishment. We've seen this in the past. We see it here. We will continue to see it until the cross. The idea of teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. All right, the verb here for astonishment, both in Matthew and in Mark, is ekpleso. E-K-P-L-E-S-S-O, ekpleso. E-K-P-L-E-S-S-O, ekpleso, number 1605. And we read it. In uh, both the Matthew record and the Mark record, um, verse 2, astonished. Many of the listeners were astonished. And I think, let me pull this up here with ek pleso. When you think ek, you're thinking um, ek, ex, exit, uh, out, right? And pleso uh, is, is a punching idea uh, to strike. Think about having the wind knocked out of you. Think about uh, being punched in the gut uh, so hard that you just, <coughs> you know, you just lost your wind at that point. That's how astonished they were. It's like a slap in the face that just totally strikes you and leaves you struck physically. And you can then use it metaphorically to describe your astonishment. And so it's a, it's a, it's a vivid way to describe the astonishment. There's other, other words to wonder, to marvel, to be amazed uh, there's other words where your mind is simply overwhelmed with what's before you, where you, you can't believe your eyes. You know, what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. No, it's not something that before your eyes that's dazzling you in the entertainment value of it. That's thalmazo, and there's other terms for that, to wonder at or to marvel. This actually is to be struck, to be, to be struck and left out of sorts. And there's... Um, 
a description of it uh, I found anyway in uh, Bauer. I like Bauer. It's one of my favorite uh, my favorite lexicons. All right, let's get to there. Nicoblethentos. We'll pull up the idea of ekbalo. Whoops, did the wrong word. Oh, I'm in the wrong verse. I need to go to Mark chapter 6. Thought I was already there. Verse 2, they were astonished. Here it is. Ek pleso. Rather causative. Um, ek pleso is, actually goes back... The Attic form was ek plato, with T's rather than S's, um, used in the Church Fathers, used in the New Testament, used in the Septuagint, only in the passive, interestingly enough. Um, Homer, Testament of Solomon, Testament of Abraham, so there's, an apoc- there's some apocryphal uses of it as well. Testament of Job, the apocrypha, uh, Ezekiel that's there. To cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. You can render it amaze, astound, or overwhelm. Literally, to strike out of one's senses. To strike out, you've been slapped. Absolutely slapped with something. And so you're amazed by it. Um, some other examples of the early uh, uh, Greek writers. Aristotle and so forth. You'll notice... Passive with an active sense, to be amazed, to be overwhelmed, uh, possibly because of fright, possibly because of something else. The disciples were terribly shocked, we're told, in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10 and verse 26. That's when he was teaching them about divorce. And he was being very strict about, uh, they had these divorce questions and they they're absolutely slapped across the face saying, well then who can, who can uh, it's better not even to get married in the first place. And uh, there's, there's passages there we'll come up to, and we'll, we'll try to describe that accordingly. Josephus uses the term in uh, his Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, his parents were dumbfounded they, they, when they went and found him in the temple. It was like a slap in the face to them. He was sitting there, and he was teaching, and the old men were listening, and they were asking him questions, and, and they were uh, like a slap to them. And... Uh, other uses of it there, but the the idea of almost a, a physical slap, a physical blow that's leaving you uh, a bit overwhelmed, comes into the uh, comes into the picture here. Teaching with authority produced repeated astonishment. Teaching with authority produced repeated astonishment. And let's look at a handful of these scriptures, starting in Matthew seven. Teaching with authority produced repeated astonishment. Likely, the biggest issue in this present episode is the fact that he came back. <laughs> you know, there's the guy that last year we tried to drive him off a cliff. And now he comes back. And now he's got these disciples following after him. And he stands up to speak again. Teaching with authority. And it's amazing them. You also have the idea that word had spread with respect to what he had done in other villages. Remember, he was traveling throughout all of the villages. He'd raised the widow's son at Nain. That was nearby. 
not too far from Nazareth. Other things that he'd done in other villages there in, in Galilee, and they had heard about his wonders. Where has he gotten these things? Well, what things? These disciples, these followers, these women that are following after, supporting him out of their private means. He's got a support staff that's helping to, to finance their travels and, and lodging and food and so forth. Um, but most of all, the, 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 besides the miracles, most of all the teaching. Where is he getting these, these messages? He didn't go to the school of Hillel. He didn't go to the school of Shammai. He's a carpenter. All right, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. How was that received? Well, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Here's the explanation for why they were struck. Why they had the wind knocked out of them. That's how struck they were. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. It's a huge difference. Scribes weren't teaching as having authority. They were teaching according to their party line. They were teaching according to what their school promoted. Either the followers of Hillel, the followers of Shammai, or so forth. And they uh, they were uh, giving the interpretations, and then they were also giving the alternative interpretation. And they were debating the, the merits of each and why they held to their particular school. Well, you know, believers, they need to be fed the Word of God. They don't want to sit and listen to a theological debate. They need to be fed the Word of God and receive the power that nourishes them, that strengthens them, that builds them up in the faith and strengthens them in the inner man. And that will astonish people. And that's what we have here. Uh, at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 22, Matthew 22 and verse 33, And this is where he uh, points out to, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, recognizing that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Those three patriarchs are alive in his presence. And uh, the crowds heard this. They were astonished at his teaching. Mark one twenty-two. Mark one twenty-two. This is in Capernaum, the context, teaching in the synagogue. They were amazed at his teaching again, as authority. He was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Eleven eighteen of Mark, Mark eleven eighteen. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Teaching with authority produces astonishment in those who hear and a lot of anger and opposition and antagonism on the part of those who won't hear, on the part of those who feel threatened. Remarkably enough, You see it there. You see the jealousy. You see the fear, the hatred on their part. Same thing happens today in terms of churches that feel threatened. Um, well, <laughs> don't blame them. You ought to be threatened. You ought to be afraid. Believers that are under doctrine, believers that are under a systematic teaching, believers that are 
in a ministry workshop or taking grace notes or studying in, in a concentrated fashion, in a systematic fashion, more often than not, those believers are, are more equipped with doctrine than your standard light and fluffy pastor that's out there. I hate saying that, but that's the reality of it. That is the absolute reality of it. All right. And opposition grows. Resentment, jealousy. Uh, oftentimes, those who teach with authority are attacked as being arrogant. They say, oh, how can they know so much? How can they think they know so much? Oh, they're just pride. They're boastful. They're arrogant. Dogmatic teachers. They're hated. I can't tell you how many times Colonel Fiend was attacked for being uh, arrogant in his teaching. Not arrogant. You can teach with authority, and it's not your authority. It's the Lord's authority. All right, uh, one in Luke, one in Acts, uh, Luke 4.32. Luke 4.32, he came uh, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. Now, it was not just Christ teaching with authority. The disciples after Christ taught with authority. The apostles taught with authority. And so when we have a reference in the book of Acts, it's not... Uh, amazing to us because it's just a continuation. The gospel or the uh, ministry of the word of God went forth under the apostles with the same authority as it had with Christ. They were Christ's representatives. And in Acts 13, 40, uh, 13, 12, this is the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas or Barnabas and Paul. And, uh, here they are. And, uh, they're on the island of Cyprus, and they've got some issues here, and they get to meet some folks, including some opposition. There's Elemas, the magician, uh, opposing them. And then the uh, victory here in conflict. Notice uh, we're not here to cooperate with the adversaries. We're not here to cooperate with We get this, these males from Austin area interreligious ministries. And so forth. We have no interest in in joining forces with the devil and his minions. So far as that goes. Here he's in conflict with Elymas the magician. He doesn't back down and he confronts him. And uh, a very interesting pattern there because in verse uh, 11, immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Uh, Paul cursed him, as it were, gave him a physical blindness to match his spiritual blindness. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. He resulted in this man's salvation, the proconsul, a high Roman official. So it's described there. This pattern goes beyond the book of Acts. It goes beyond the apostles. It goes beyond and, and becomes characteristic of the dispensation of the church. Uh, I have a quote from the church fathers. Polycarp wrote. Actually, this was uh, written about Polycarp and his martyrdom. And uh, you get down to chapter 7. The short chapters. Uh, so taking the lad with them on the Friday about the supper hour, a uh, 
arrest warrant has been issued for Polycarp. He's an old man. Uh, he's been threatened. He has to recant his faith or they will arrest him. And uh, he will not do so. So taking the line with them on the Friday about the supper hour, the, the gendarmes and the horsemen. This is uh, Lightfoot's translation. goes back. You can tell the language is a bit old. We don't use gendarmes anymore. Uh, and horsemen went forth with their accustomed arms, hastening as against a robber. And coming up in a body late in the evening, they found the man himself in bed in an upper chamber in a certain cottage. And uh, though he might have departed thence to another place, he would not, saying, The will of God be done. So when they heard they were come, he went down and conversed with them, the bystanders, marveling at his age and his constancy, and wondering how there should be so much eagerness for the apprehension of an old man like him. Thereupon, forthwith, he gave orders that a table should be sp uh, spread for them to eat and drink at that hour as much as they desired. So he's feasting the arresting officers that have come to haul him away and burn him at the stake. And uh, he persuaded them to grant him an hour that he might pray unmolested. And, you know, here's the MPs. Every MP I've ever been associated with, if there's a great big feast laid out there, you know, you need an hour? We can arrest you an hour from now? Great. Well, we're going to stuff ourselves. And uh, and on their consenting, he stood up and prayed, being so full of the grace of God that for two hours he could not hold his peace. And those that heard were amazed. That's ekpleso. That's the verb that's utilized in the New Testament to describe the reaction of teaching with authority. Here it's describing the reaction of a prayer that went forth with authority. They were amazed and many repented that they had come against such a venerable old man. But when at length he brought the prayer to an end after remembering all who at any time had come in his way, small and great, high and low, and all the universal church throughout the world, the hour of departure being come, they seated him on an ass and brought him into the city, it being a high Sabbath. I'm coming up on the end of the hour, so I'll go ahead and read a little bit more on this. We'll finish with this. It's a good story. Are you familiar with this? Have you ever read the martyrdom of Polycarp? Polycarp was one of the earliest of the church fathers. In his youth, he studied under the apostle John at Smyrna. And may he pastored at Smyrna for many, many years. It's debated whether he was the angelos to the church of Smyrna that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, some people think it's likely that he was. Others say, no, he probably didn't become the, uh, the uh, pastor there until 106 A.D., that the writing of Revelation was immediately prior to him, that the angel of Smyrna was his predecessor. Nevertheless, Polycarp knew John in his lifetime. He knew the Apostle John. And uh, so he's a very early witness to the Apostles themselves. So uh, they take him into the city on the high Sabbath. And then uh, he's got the opportunity here. He was met by Herod, the captain of police, and his father, uh, Nicetes, who also removed him to their carriage and tried to prevail upon him, um, seating themselves by his side and saying, why, why, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense with uh, more to this effect and saving thyself? All he had to do to save his life was worship Caesar. And the Christians in, that, in the second century were not willing to do so. They knew that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, that Jesus Christ was their risen Savior, and they were not going to become idol worshipers. And uh, he at first gave them no answer. When, however, they persisted, he said, I am not going to do what you counsel me. 
Then they, failing to persuade him, uttered threatening words and made him dismount with speed so that he bruised his shin. And as he got down from the carriage, and without even turning around, he went on his way promptly with speed as if nothing had happened to him being taken to the stadium, there being such a tumult in the stadium that no man's voice so much as could be heard. But as Polycarp entered into the stadium, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Now, as far as these go, are these reliable? Did this really happen? This is part of the tradition. This is part of the legend, part of the story. Remember, this is not scripture. And at the same time, maybe it did. We don't know. We weren't there. One who claimed to be there, though, wrote this record. Um, and this is, by the way, this is one of the more believable records. <laughs> you read some of the other ones, and you get some real fantastic martyrdoms. And in the later, you know, like the 5th and 6th century and so forth, um, it, it, it got to be one-upsmanship. There got to be some real romantic uh, martyrdoms that, that would be written. Uh, I want to get down here to, there we are, verse 9. Uh, and we'll close with this. But as Polycarp entered in the stadium, okay, there's the voice, play the man. No one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And at length, when he was brought up, there was a great tumult, for they heard that Polycarp had been apprehended. When, uh, they, when, when then he was brought before him, the proconsul inquired whether he were the man. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to a denial, saying, Have respect to thine age, and other things in accordance therewith. And it is their wont to say, Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, stood upon the whole multitude lawless, of lawless heathen that were in the stadium, and waved his hand to them, and groaning, and looking up to heaven, he said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath, and I will release thee, revile the Christ, Polycarp said, Fourscore and six years have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And that was his testimony, and very shortly thereafter, he is uh, going to be executed here. So, um, again, you get uh, good 19th century English. Um, these, then these things happened with so great speed, quicker than words could tell, the crowds forthwith collecting from the workshops and baths, timber and faggots, and the Jews more especially assisting in with this zeal as is their want. And uh, nowadays we don't read things with faggots without risking, you know, lawsuits and protest marches and so forth. But when the pile was made ready, divesting himself of all his upper garments and loosing his girdle, he endeavored also to take off his shoes, though uh, not in the habit of doing this before, because all the faithful at all times vied eagerly who should soon touch his flesh. And uh, anyway, he gets burned at the stake here. And uh, he offers one final prayer. And uh, that's the martyrdom of Polycarp. Anyway, it's over here on the shelf if you're interested. Part of the uh, early church fathers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for teaching with authority. And it has been recognized in the life of our Savior. It was observed in the life of the apostles in the book of Acts. Also recognized in the writings of the church fathers that uh, the ministry of your word with power and with authority is one that will cause amazement when it's observed. It will edify your children who receive it. And it will uh, it will leave dumbfounded the uh, those who, uh, Father, don't know what to think about your word going forth with such authority. In some cases, they're afraid of it. In some cases, they hate it. In some cases, they're just uh, baffled as to why 
we're so committed to the teaching, uh, to the form of teaching that we've been committed to. Father, we thank you for this ministry and for the truth of your word in this lampstand. We ask that you would continue to supply the grace uh, that is always, always sufficient and abundant for every good deed. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.